Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm Rebecca Bernard, your host and the co-author of the book Patients at Risk and the author of the follow-up book, Imposter Doctors. Today, I'm talking with a group of Louisiana physicians who have decided to put their money and their time where their mouth is to advocate for physician-led care and ensure that patients in Louisiana have access to a physician. By working together, these physicians were able to employ a lobbyist to stop dangerous legislation and to promote legislation that helps patients stay safe. My name is Dr. Jamie Quo, and I am an emergency physician in the New Orleans area in Louisiana. Jamie, how did you first get involved in the fight to protect physician-led care in Louisiana? When this one independent practice bill was flying through the legislation in Louisiana, I had known that our state medical society had addressed these bills in the past, but it was always kind of just out there. I was thinking I wasn't paying attention. Somebody else was taking care of it. And then all of a sudden, physicians were posting and calling and texting each other and saying, hey, this bill is about to pass. And I had already been a member of Physicians for Patient Protection for a few years before that. So my eyes opened and my ears opened, and I started really paying attention. And I said, oh, my goodness, they are right. This bill is going to pass this year. So it was that year that I really woke up and I met Summer through this because Summer became aware of it at the same time. She and I started our own Louisiana Facebook groups one day apart from each other. And someone added me to her group and I messaged her and said, hey, I'm not trying to tread on your territory, but I think this is important. And she said, absolutely. And we ended up talking the next day. We hit it off. We were totally on the same page. And by Thursday, we decided just a few days later, we decided that we were going to hire a lobbyist to help us get our message to the Capitol because we realized that we needed one. We were all working. You know, you can't make it to Baton Rouge every day, which is a little over an hour and a half for us and close to four hours for Debbie. So uh, Summer started raising money. I started raising money. And that's how I met Debbie. Uh, Someone met with Debbie and Debbie donated money to hire the lobbyists. And uh, we were able to join in with every other society that was doing it in Louisiana. And we were able to kill House Bill 495. And after that, everything took off with the rest of our advocacy efforts. I'm going to have you tell me a lot more detail about the bill. But first, let's have um, Debbie tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background. Yes, I'm Debbie Fletcher, emergency physician in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I got interested in scope of practice because I was actually a physician whose job was replaced. Uh, A contract management group came into our hospital system without much notice to the physicians. And they decided as a carve out to get non-physician practitioners in the department that they would replace the physicians that were part-time. I was part-time as a working mom and enjoyed being a mom, but also as a doctor. And my job was eliminated. One of the physicians who was the chief medical officer told me, oh, Debbie, it's just business. And that wasn't cool to me. And I started Googling how this could happen. And I found PPP online and joined. So I was like, oh, I found my people. This is wonderful. I started becoming active. I emailed ASAP 
like the day I found out and was hooked up with some of the ASAP people that were working on workforce on their task force. I emailed the AAM representatives and was in contact with the editor for Common Sense. And he and I wrote an article for Common Sense called A Sad But True Story. And at the time, I wrote it anonymously because I was scared of the repercussions. And then when HB 495 came out and I was still trying to figure out what I could do, our ASEP chapter was trying to figure out what we could do. And Jamie had contacted our president about donating. And that's how we started. I have so many thoughts when I heard what you said. First of all, they, them saying it's business. Well, healthcare, if that's what healthcare and business looks like, then there's maybe a really good reason that business should not be in healthcare if that's how they're going to act. And then secondly, I always think to myself, it's so interesting that women especially are so passionate about scope of practice. And I think your example is so, you know, you're a working mom, you're trying to to do this, and now you're getting replaced. And you're going to have some nurse practitioners say, well, doctors are just sexist, and they're trying to hold women down. (laughs) And your example is just actually the exact opposite. Summer, talk to us about your story. I'm a plastic surgeon in New Orleans. I graduated from medical school in 1991 and did most of my training here. I have a nurse practitioner in my office. I met these two when in 2021, when this particular bill was, like she said, flying through the legislature. And all of a sudden, we all became in panic mode and realized that this is something we probably should have been working on for quite some time, as you know, the nursing lobbies have been working on this for years. So we just got together and started learning more about the topic and wanted to first and foremost, defeat that particular bill, but then recognize that this was going to be a problem going forward. And we needed to educate the legislatures and also educate patients to recognize what was going on and why this was happening. Once we started really talking to nurse practitioners themselves, lots of nurse practitioners don't want this. They want to be part of a care team. But the corporations that own hospitals now Obviously, this is very beneficial to them for financial reasons. So it became pretty clear that this was being pushed by corporations as well as the nursing lobby and really had very little to do with actual nurse practitioners or patients and certainly had nothing to do with physicians. So this house bill was really a call to action for you guys. You were most, for the most part, not super aware of the political situation because you're doctors, you're practicing, you're taking care of patients. But then this bill came up and it was really quite alarming. So tell us what the bill said. Um, Jamie, do you want to explain it? It was the typical, quote unquote, full practice authority, which was the tagline for, that the nurses were using that year. I do feel like they changed the terminology or whatever phrase they're using every few years, but that year it was full practice authority. And, you know, it was 2021. So it was one year into the pandemic. And I think that is the reason why the bill almost passed was because in 2020, the National Governors Association decided to they decided as a group that they would allow all nurses across the nation. I don't think there was any state that didn't partake. I'm almost positive it was all the states. And they they gave nurse practitioners temporary full practice authority. So a year later, it emboldened the nurse practitioner lobby to come and say, hey, we've been practicing independently for the past year and nobody died, you know, everybody. Everybody, everybody did well. So there's your year-long proof that we've done well. Give us full practice authority, which would allow them to work without the supervision of a physician. That's what they said, Jamie, but did they actually have any data or proof that that was true? 
And it was really a disingenuous argument anyway, because the people that had been practicing collaboratively over that the five or 10 years before that didn't immediately hang out their shingle like, oh, now we have full practice authority. I'm hanging out a shingle and opening a business. And here we are a year later and I've got a year of data. Of course not. So really during that year, I would venture to say the vast majority, if not everyone, was practicing in the same circumstances they had been practicing pre-pandemic. Right. I mean, we have that here in Florida, they passed a law that nurse practitioners could practice primary care independently uh, with certain number of hours. And here it's been, I think, a couple of years now, and I haven't seen any data. We don't know where they're practicing. There's no online repository where you can see. We don't know if they're going to, quote, unquote, underserved or rural areas or whether they're opening a bunch of Botox clinics. So there's never a lot of transparency about there's always a lot of promises, but we don't always see the way it plays out. So Debbie, tell me about what you got, what your next steps were. You became aware of this bill. Did you start by going through your state medical society or what other steps did you take before you could, you guys decided to take matters into your own hands? With HB 495, we decided to take matters into our own hands immediately, actually. <laughs> we did contact our state medical society and we found out that they were working on this, but we thought we needed a more aggressive push and ended up hiring a lobbyist with a, a number of Louisiana physicians and just paid for one at the last minute. And that lobbyist was able to help defeat HB 495 at the very last. It had already passed through you know, the committee in the House, House floor, Senate Health and Welfare, and it was going to the Senate floor. And it was very close to passing. The lobbyist was able to explain that this can help create a two-tier system, which is bad for a lot of the rural and minorities. And they were able to see that and did vote against the bill. This bill still gives us PTSD to this day. After that, we're like, okay, we need to be proactive. And we thought our state medical society would be more proactive than they were. And we realized by the end of this, that summer and then towards the end of the year, really nothing had changed. We hadn't organized. It hadn't improved the way we thought it could so that it wouldn't, we could defeat it the next year. So Jamie at Shaheen, another emergency medicine physician, and I started meeting weekly in January or February of 2022, trying to figure out what to do. And we came up with, all right, we're just going to start a nonprofit and we're going to organize, create our, our own group and have our own lobbyist. And that's what we did. What's your group called? Louisiana Physicians for Patients. I love it. I think Texas is doing something similar. Mm -hmm. Some of the Mississippi doctors. It's so nice when you're a grassroots group because you can be so nimble and you can be so focused on your mission. I know that our state medical societies and our national societies are working on these issues, but I think it's a very hard because they, they have so many things that they're working on. Whereas, you know, when you get a group that's just focused on one issue, you may be able to actually move the needle, which you definitely did. So, Summer, how many doctors were involved in your group and how were you able to communicate with each other and build this team that you created? Jamie and I, when we initially got together and said, this is going to be a problem, we have at most a week to get this thing defeated. It was just the two of us at first, but we are completely different specialties, obviously. I'm plastic surgery. She's emergency medicine. So we know totally different people. And so I said, look, let's get a lobbyist. 
So I talked to a few people and found who we were going to be able to get uh, that we both thought would be somebody that was strong because it was a spot that, you know, it was time that you needed somebody that was going to get the work done. So I went to my group of plastic surgeons, general surgeons, dermatologists, people that I knew and raised half the money. And then Jamie did that same thing with her group. And, you know, with a lot of emergency medicine physicians and some other people that she knew and did the exact same thing. And I think it was within three days we had the money raised. I was shocked at how quickly we were able to get the money. It it made me realize that these other physicians knew this was going on and recognized how terrible this would be for patient care. So Summer and I started those Facebook groups and the membership grew immediately. Every exploded. And we actually called it PPP, Physician for Patient Protection, Louisiana. And then once we decided to make it an official organization, we wanted it to be independent. We called it Louisiana Physician for Patients and we uh, incorporated it. We're a 501c6 now. But we have over 500 members just in the Facebook group. And something that I do also is I really like to communicate with people. So I do a lot of Facebook posts And then I even go down my phone and I literally will, even this past year, if there's a bill that I'm concerned about, I literally go down my phone and text every single one of my friends that's a physician on that list. And something else that I like to do is I've gotten in touch with the administrator or the president of the different specialty societies and the different parish, we have parishes, not counties, the different parish societies. And I will contact them and email them my blurbs, my calls to action, or I'll text it to them. And then they spread it out that way. So it's a lot of the grassroots outreach, which is so important because the legislators keep telling us, you know, Summer and I have a lot of lunches with them here in New Orleans. They keep telling us, where have y'all been? Where have y'all been? And we say, physicians, we keep our heads down. Like we work. Yeah. We're kind of busy. We're like, in your case, Jamie and Debbie, you guys are in the ER saving lives. And, you know, Summer, you're making a difference in people's lives every day. And we are, when we're not working, we're not making money. And you have families and kids. So, I mean, it's, I guess that's what we have to do, but it's awfully hard to do that. And uh, I think what we really need is an organizer. And I think what you guys have done is an incredible testimony to community organization and getting doctors organized. And one thing that we talked about was every one of these legislatures has, a doctor. And a lot of them, we know, we know those doctors, all of us know those doctors. And Mm -hmm. so we thought if we can reach all of these physicians and let them educate, you know, like I know who my representatives are. I need to educate mine. Jamie Mm -hmm. should educate hers. Debbie should educate hers and so on and so forth. And so that was part of our mission in terms of educating physicians and and empowering them to be proactive as well so that we're all doing a little bit of the work instead of a few people doing a lot of the work. So you guys are focusing your efforts really politically right now through the form of the lobbyist. Are you also looking at strategies like donations to different politicians, things like that? We're not big enough yet. When when Summer and I will take them to lunch and Debbie too, we, I basically donate to every single organization that I'm a member of, the PAC, you know, we were at LSMS yesterday and I had my land pack. Uh, we had our House of Delegates yesterday. I had my land pack, you know, banner at the bottom. But we're not at that moment. Yet. We're still growing because we're still so young. But I definitely make individual donations. And honestly, 
I don't honestly don't even feel like I'm doing it to win a vote because you you know the real only way to get someone to vote exactly how I want is for me to run for office and win and and, <laughs> and me place a vote. But we more donate when they have a lunch with us, just as an appreciation for them taking their time to speak to us and listen to us. Because sometimes these lunches last two and a half hours. And Summer and I don't even live in the same district as some of these people that we're meeting with. But we we call them, we say, hey, we want to talk to you about these topics. And they say, okay, we set a date. And then we have a great lunch at somewhere local. And the conversation, because this is such an interesting and specific topic, is so interesting uh, and I, I give them a stack of papers like this, plus a copy of uh, your first book. And uh, I do, I give them a copy of your book every time. Uh, you know, I give them the data, you know, so that we're not just blowing smoke. We're saying, hey, this is what we're saying. And here's the data behind it. And oh, by the way, here's a book for you to also hear about, read about the history. And it goes over very well. I never and thought you know, about taking them to lunch. Like what a great idea. That's so smart. Yeah, that's one of the areas I feel like the lobbyist has helped the most is that they've been very instrumental in putting us in contact with these people to set up lunches. And then Jamie and I just meet them at lunch and we don't like, we really just talk to them. Like we're talking here today, you know, most of these legislators really want what's best for their constituents. The, the issue is, is they don't know. It is a very complicated and nuanced subject, you know, independent practice. And they only know what they've been told and they may have only heard one side of the story. Exactly. And so it it was difficult for us to understand. And we're in medicine. I didn't realize that there were nurse practitioner schools that 90% of the information was delivered online that, that I had no idea about that. How would I, how could I possibly expect them to know that and understand the impact that that would have on someone's education or lack thereof. Yeah, it sounds and like so, the lobbyist has been really instrumental in in helping you guys bridge the those relationships. Talk to me, uh, maybe Debbie, about how you found this lobbyist. Well, the first lobbyist we had for the HB four ninety five was something someone that we had to get just at the last minute. So when we organized more officially, we decided we would interview different lobbyists to see who would fit best. Jamie found some that she interviewed. I found some that I interviewed. And we ended up choosing the Duke firm in Louisiana. They had not been really in the healthcare market. They were new and they really understood once we explained it. It's a um, a father and his two children are also in with him. They get it. They see the problem now that we've explained it, and they really want to go forward and explain it to the legislators. And they have been very instrumental because they have such good relationships with all of the people at the Capitol. They're agreeable to speak with us. And through being more present, because like Summer said, we've had our head down, we've worked, we haven't been there. They have only really heard one side of the story, but once Jamie especially has been there regularly. They've gotten to know her. And one of the legislators told her that he was really impressed that we've been able to turn it around and show them that it's not physician greed. It's not a turf war. We really are caring about the patients. What does it cost you in a ballpark price to to hire a lobbyist just in case other physicians are going to look into this? $50,000 per year. $50,000, you said? Mm -hmm. For yeah. for a legislative yeah. season, basically, for year no year round for full time. Oh. Yeah, not that they're working for us forty hours a week, right? Year round, yes. 
$50,000 investment, when you divide it up amongst 500 doctors, if that's how many you have donating, you might not have that many, but mm -hmm. that's not as an incredible, it's not insurmountable. And then to be able to have your point of view expressed to the legislators and turn around these bills, it's well worth it. I think it's definitely worth it, mainly because like we've said, it's, it educates them and it's 100% a patient safety issue. And once we sit down and talk to them, every one of them is going to be a patient one day if they aren't already. And I think they really get to understand it once you sit down and talk to them in a way that people that aren't physicians can understand. Let's talk about physician greed, because just this week, there was a Washington Post article uh, talking, the, the headline and the way it started out was talking about doctors make too much money. Uh, of course, then they later explained that the ones making the top dollars are neurosurgeons and some other surgeons. And also they put that they're working 60, 70 hours a week. So, you know, they kind of took away some of their own argument there. And then they pointed out, of course, that primary care makes much less. But of course, the article started out with these greedy doctors that just make so much money. So how do you overcome that mindset that doctors are just trying to protect our turf and we want to make more money? Patient stories. Uh, a lot of them have really listened to the different stories Summer sister Dustin is an gynecologic surgeon uh, that yep. does uh, cancer. Oh. Yep, and she has had some really bad outcomes and delayed diagnoses because of uh, non-physician care that was done initially. So she was able to have a meeting with all of us when we met with the governor last year and explain these things. And they're they're shocked by it. They don't know this is happening. No, we see the stories, especially the emergency department every day. We can see a mismanagement story pretty regularly, but they don't know it. And there's really no way to report it. We don't have any way to tell these stories to report to the Board of Nursing or the Board of Medicine. We just fix it and move on because there just isn't time in the day. Or there's no way to fix it. Like she had one patient that hadn't been properly screened for cancer. And by the time she came in, she had, you know, metastatic cervical cancer and she was dead in three months. There's no place that says to come and report that. So, you know, that patient's family has no idea that they weren't managed properly. We keep it patient focused, right? So the, between the three of us, if whether full practice authority passes for nurse practitioners or PAs get to convert from supervision to collaboration or or even without without any supervision at all or if pharmacists become provide get the provider status that they want no one on this phone call is going to make any more or less money i'm i'm a salaried employee i work for the federal government w2 summer is not there's no one there's no non-physician practitioners that's going to be able to do the plastic surgery that summer does and and nothing's going to change summer how long has your nurse practitioner been working for you about six years. Yeah. But she's not going to go, what What would she do differently, right? If she gets independent practice, she's very happy in your clinic. She's not yeah. leaving. She's one of the ones that was, you know, she was as upset about this as the three of us were. She said she's an older nurse practitioner that, you know, she had worked in the ER for many years before she went back and became a nurse practitioner. And then once she got her degree, she then went back and worked she said herself, she said, I never would ever want to be in the ER by myself. And she's a brilliant, brilliant woman and a fantastic clinician. But she said it's not safe. Like people deserve to have a physician 
if they're going to have a nurse practitioner, they deserve to have a physician and a nurse practitioner. So I think there's a lot of nurse practitioners out there that are like her. She's had well over 30 years of experience. Like anything else, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. I think the the media loses the focus. They get focused on physician salaries of those some outliers, and they lose track of who's really making the money, which are the insurance CEOs, the host, the contract management group organizers, and all these middlemen that are getting making lots and lots of profit. Now, I wonder how did your state medical society react to your grassroots efforts? Was there any friction or discomfort, or were they really supportive with what you were doing? There was definitely friction. Uh, we were the the new kid on the block, but overall, the, all three of us are members of our state medical society, and we're all active members. We were at the House of Delegates yesterday, passing resolutions and giving commentary. So I, I know the doctors love us because the they're that we're you know we're we're advocating for in their benefit. But you know the, the lobbyists and the administrators, I think at first they didn't know what to do with us. And what we just keep showing is that we're not your enemy; we're your partner. And so we're in constant contact with them. If the lobbyists for our state medical society messaged me and says, hey, can you post this in your Facebook group or can you get the word out of this? I pass it on. There's no reason for me not to. We're on the same team. We're just working in parallel. And that's how we were with each other. Like Jamie mentioned, we we she and I both started a Facebook page within days of each other. We collaborated with each other and we said, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. And if you live by that, motto, things tend to work out for the best. What advice do you have for other physicians and how they can follow your lead and how they can get more involved? Put your ego aside and work together. That is key. So like she said, we didn't try and go against the state medical society. We tried to go with them. Now we did our own thing and we didn't let them slow us down, but we want them to be with us and we want to be with them. And we do that in every situation. At the end of the day, it's about the patients. If you do right by the patients, you'll always be doing right by the doctor. Thanks so much for listening to the first part of my two-part discussion with Louisiana Physicians for Patients. In the next section, we're going to talk about not only the steps that these doctors have taken to play the defensive end, but how they decided to start playing offense and start to put forth legislation to be more proactive in protecting patients from Scope Creep. I'll also put in a plug for my books, Patients at Risk, co-authored with Dr. Narana Lajba, and my follow-up book, Imposter Doctors. You heard the Louisiana physicians talk about giving a copy of the book to legislators to help them understand some of the background and some of the nuance surrounding non-physician practitioner independence. You can get those books on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. And if you'd like to reach out to these physicians, you have ideas or topics for the podcast, or you'd like to be a guest, feel free to message me directly. You can do that through the website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.